If you've been following along with us, you know that uh, we're just kind of taking a brief hiatus from the um, exposition of Luke's Gospel. And we have been reviewing the principal themes that have emerged in those first eight chapters. And as we consider those themes, last week we looked at commitment to God and what it means to, to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit in total surrender. Uh, another theme that stands out in those uh, eight chapters and will continue to be a part of Luke's story about the life of Christ is dealing with the enemy, temptation and demonization. Uh, Jesus encountered the temptation that is uh, so classic uh, for our reading in um, the fourth chapter of Luke. It's recorded in the Gospels, other Gospels that are parallel, that he went into the wilderness led by the Holy Spirit, presumably to receive direction and guidance for his public ministry. And while there, fasting and waiting on the Father, uh, being uh, led by the Holy Spirit, he also encountered some pretty tough opposition by the devil. Uh, we discover him there dealing with temptation. It comes up again and again. And then as he begins his public ministry, the uh, matter of dealing with demonic spirits kind of come up. Oftentimes when we think of dealing with principalities and powers, we have the dramatic incidents come to mind. We, we think about those, uh, the Gadarene demoniac, for example, whom we recently studied, uh, couldn't keep clothes on him, running wild in the tombs, um, a legion of demons in him. We think about uh, a boy that was uh, thrown to the ground, thrashing about until he was delivered. We tend to see these cataclysmic conflicts as being um, what the Bible means when it talks about wrestling not against flesh and blood. But let me ask you, how many of you have had that kind of encounter? You know, some of you have. Uh, I, I've had some pretty horrendous encounters. But is that the norm? Is that every day? Is that the kind of thing that, that all of you face on a rather constant basis? And I, I think the answer to that is pretty clearly no. And yet the scripture says our struggle. Now, how many of you would say you struggle frequently in, in your spiritual walk and development? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm. So when the Bible tells us that our warfare is dealing with demonic powers and, and wicked angelic powers, it's talking about that day-to-day, week-after-week battle that we are in as children of God on a journey uh, toward his uh, eternal kingdom. And it does not include very often those dramatic power encounters that we see where deliverance is so uh, miraculous and instantaneous. It's more the day after day battle 
of resisting the enemy and being faithful to God. And so I want to look at that this morning and how Paul explains that to us as we kind of leap forward in church history, well, at least 25 or so years, and we look at the establishment of the Ephesian church and we say, what did Paul mean when he wrote to them, our struggle is not against flesh and blood? Many of you recall when we were studying the book of Acts, you recall how the church at Ephesus was founded. We've also, uh, in years past, uh, rather uh, meticulously studied the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the, to the Ephesian church. But uh, just for the sake of recollection, uh, when Paul went there, um, there was a lot of resistance, a lot of opposition, but finally there was a powerful breakthrough and when that occurred, uh, many people were converted. There was a revival. Uh, I don't know if you could call it a revival because there was no re to it, but it was a revival. <laughs> they, they came to a, a vibrant faith in Christ. And um, the scripture says that these people that were converted were so soundly converted from their demonism and idolatry and animistic ways that they brought all of their amulets and charms and, and uh, idols and the things that they used in their incantations and magic and worship and whatever. They brought it together into a big pile and they burned them. They, they wanted to sever all ties and that has historically been the pattern as the gospel has gone into uh, parts of the world where that has been prevalent to ask people to burn the um, items that they have used in their false worship, to sever ties. And the scripture says that the, uh, the sum of that pile of goods, if you were to go out in the market and buy it, was worth 50,000 denarii. And a denarius was equivalent to a day's wage. So 50,000 days wage. Uh, that is a lot. It's at least, you know, four years um, per thousand. And so 50 times four is 200 working years for an adult. It was that sum of money. That's a lot of money that was burned and uh, that was the, the birthing of the church at Ephesus. They came out of prevalent kinds of idolatry and demonism to faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, John tells us, actually Jesus tells us in his letter to the, letters to the churches in Revelation, that Ephesus was characterized in the early days by Fervent love for the Lord, fervent passion for Jesus Christ. Uh, we we kind of know that by the inverse, because Jesus says, go back and do the deeds you did at first. You have forgotten your first love. Go back and recover that. Go back and do the things you did at first. Well, that was their nature at first, was to be passionately in love with and committed to Jesus Christ. And uh, also we learn that the church, and this was one of their problems, and one of the things that diverted them was that they were particularly susceptible to false teaching and to uh, division, to separation amongst themselves. Paul warned them of that on his, on his last tour back through the region before going to Jerusalem and ultimately ending up in Rome 
uh, he met with them on the beach. You remember that dramatic scene from the book of Acts where Paul and they're weeping and they're, um, they love each other so much and they're so committed to one another. And Paul says, I, 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 I tell you with a heavy heart, it, it burdens me to say that in, in time, other people are going to come in and some from even among yourselves here today are going to rise up with false teaching and you're going to introduce this into the church and it's going to create problems. And you need to be on guard. You need to be watching for that because the enemy will seek to bring you down that way. You know, we get the, the brief version in, in Acts, but you can just imagine the kind of uh, pathos and, 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 and empathy and grief that Paul is, is warning them about this kind of thing that's going to come that will divert them from the, the purity of the gospel. And surely enough, it occurred because he writes later on to Timothy, all in Asia Minor have turned away from me. That included that Ephesian church. But then somewhere along the line, they recognized the error of their ways and they came back to truth. And Jesus says to them in the Revelation, in his letter to the Ephesian church, the first letter, he says, you have tried those who pretended to be apostles, and they were not. And you found them to be false. You exposed them. You have thrown them out. You have purified your doctrine. You are orthodox. You're on target. But I have this problem with you. You have left your first love. Your passion is gone. And friends, you know, one of the dangers that those of us who love the Word and love uh, truth and orthodoxy, one of the things we face is that we can be intellectually and theologically on target and our hearts can be cold. In fact, oftentimes, more often than we care to acknowledge, those two things go together. Many times, people who are most intellectually astute and theologically precise are cold and lack passion in their ardent love for Jesus Christ. And so this is, this is the backdrop here. And so as Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, the context of his comments on spiritual warfare at the end of the letter are based upon what he has been expounding for them, exhorting them, in the preceding chapters, we have a tendency to look at these letters. I have a tendency, as I preach them, to look at them piecemeal, one verse at a time. And there's benefit in that, but sometimes we lose the forest when we're focused on a tree. And we have to step back and get the big picture and, and look at the global perspective. And, and for Paul to the, to the Ephesians... His admonitions begin in chapter 4 after laying a strong foundation for who they are in Christ. Almost all of chapter 4 is taken up with the subject of maintaining unity. And friends, I want to tell you something. Nothing is closer to the heart of God among His people than unity. 
how precious it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And for God, it's like that anointing oil that ran down upon Aaron and his beard and his, and his priestly garments. That beautiful anointing of the Spirit. Nothing is more precious to God than the unity of His body, than the love of the saints. Salvation is not about me. It's about Jesus Christ and coming back into relationship with the Father. Relationship is what the gospel message is all about. And the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus is intended to heal a broken relationship. God is a relational God. He is represented to us in Scripture as the triune God who is three in unity. That's His nature. And that love that is shared within the triune Godhead is expressed in our creation in His image. We are made to be in relationship. We're designed for that. That's God's plan for us. And when sin entered, it broke relationships. And so redemption is God's answer to restoring relationships. He wants to bring us back together into His family. He wants to bring us into relationship with Himself. He wants to restore relationships with one another. He wants to bring healing into our lives so that there is love and unity and joy. Friends, when we manifest the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, founded in love that we have for each other, it is a foretaste of heaven. When we are loving each other, and celebrating our Lord Jesus Christ together. That is a taste of the marriage feast of the Lamb. When at last we are one in glory with Him. Paul's very concerned about unity. And so he spends all of that time in chapter 4, two-thirds of the chapter, given to this business of unity. Preserve, preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Don't let anything interrupt the unity. Even when he talks about apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers that are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of service, what does he say? So that we will no longer be tossed to and fro by, uh, by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of uh, men and craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we will grow up together in one body unto the Lord Jesus Christ. That which every living stone provides, cemented and glued together by the love that we share. The whole thing is about growing in Christ in unity. Manifesting and celebrating the love of God together. That's, that's the focus of Ephesians 4. And so, as he begins to develop that theme, he eventually kind of breaks in. 
And he says, I, he says, look, you need to have an attitude towards sin. You need, you need to have a mindset of passionate hatred for sin. Don't be easy on it. Don't, don't allow it in your midst. Don't let it mess your life up. Don't let the sun go down on your passion towards sin. To hate it and to, to be on guard against it. Always be vigilant. And then he talks about our speech. And he says our speech should be godly. Uh, not uh, full of impurity and coarse jesting and silly talking and the sexual innuendos that were prevalent in uh, early uh, Rome and that are prevalent in our culture. Oh my goodness. Uh, you, you just, I, I'm so sad now that you can't go anywhere uh, to a restaurant or anywhere with your family or with you know, in my case now with the grandchildren, there's nowhere I can go that uh, they don't hear foul language everywhere. Our culture is permeated by foul language and by coarse jesting and sexual innuendo. And everything is just wrapped up in this baser nature. And Paul says, your lives should have nothing to do with that. But with uh, encouragement, you should consider how to encourage one another with words that are carefully chosen to fit the need of the moment that it can give grace to those that hear. You want to think about your speech, how you can promote uh, love and unity and, and build one another up. And not waste your time on this silly and coarse drivel. And then he talks about families, and he talks about marriage, and he talks about parent-child relationships, and he talks about employment. And in all of those things, he says, Christ needs to be in the center of everything. Because it is the enemy who wants to divide and bring disunity. It is the enemy who wants to separate marriages, the enemy who wants to separate parents and children. It's the enemy who wants to mess up employment uh, relationships. It's the enemy who wants to divide you in every realm of your life and, and come against you. And how does he do that? How does he do that? He, he whispers lies. He feeds your ego. He encourages your self-assertion. I have a right. And, and you hear, yes, you do. You have rights. Defend them. Be assertive. Demand what you want. Go after it. Don't bother with who gets in your way. In all of these cases, the enemy is warring against us. And we're not even aware of the insidiousness of the attack because we think we're having these thoughts. And Paul says, you're dealing with the enemy. This is the spiritual warfare. This is how he works on your heart and your mind. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. 
that that boss at work is not your problem. Your problem is the enemy who's warring to destroy you. He may have a problem or she may have a problem, but your problem is how to live godly in Christ Jesus with that person in charge. And the enemy is the one who wants to drag you down. The enemy is the one who wants to divide in marriages. The enemy is the one who wants to damage relationships in the body. wonder what they were thinking when they looked at you like that. I don't think they like you very much. You ever wonder where those voices come from? You think you think them on your own? You have help. You know, and maybe they just had an upset stomach. You have no idea. In fact, one of the worst things that we fall into as believers is assigning motives to other people. The scripture says our own heart is giving us enough trouble that we can't figure out its motives entirely. We have struggled with our own motivation, keeping it pure, keeping it holy. How in the world can you figure out someone else's motives? Do you know how you can know what someone else is thinking? Maybe. You can ask them. And if you haven't asked them, you don't know. That's why the scripture says if you have a problem with your brother or with your sister, go talk to them. Have a conversation. And listen to what they say. Because you can't figure this out. The enemy is constantly trying to bring a wedge in every realm. Trying to give you the idea that you're number one. Trying to give you encouragement to assert yourself. And to stand up for your rights. And to demand your way. Paul says to the Corinthians, and they're struggling and fussing over stuff, and he says, what is this business I hear that you're taking each other to court? What's wrong with you people? Wouldn't you rather be wronged? And what do we answer? No. (laughs) We want our way. We want to win. Paul says it's better to let it go than to divide the body. It's better to let it go than to have the embarrassment of going into a public courtroom in front of the world and airing your differences as children of God. What has taken over your mind that you would degrade yourself to that level? Take the loss, it's better. Ooh, I have my rights. And the enemy is warring against us to break the unity. You know, we weren't in court with unbelievers in this whole business with the uh, road department. And frankly, the way our uh, system is designed, that was the only way that we could uh, deal with that. But I cannot tell you how many times we've said to ourselves, Uh, in the office and and amongst ourselves. I wish I could just sit down with the transportation board and have a conversation. We're not allowed to. We've got to go through all these lawyers. 
I wish we could just sit down and have a conversation. We could cut to the chase and clear so much up in just one simple conversation. But that couldn't happen in that realm. Oh, that it could happen with God's people. That we could sit down and have a conversation. Let me tell you something. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly realms. We wrestle against demons who study us. Does that unsettle you? Uh, Yes, it does. It should. (laughs) We also have God's Holy Spirit. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. God also has angelic powers that are, that are aiding in the battle. We can't see all that that's going on around us, but the Bible tells us that it's there. But demonic spirits look for ways to exploit your particular weaknesses and needs so that they can find your Achilles tendon and trip you up. Some of you still think that the devil can't read your mind or that demons can't read your mind. And I will say till my dying day, of course they can. Of course they can. Your skull and muscle and scalp and hair does not prevent a demon from getting in there. And the Holy Spirit already resides in there. Listen to the conversations you have sometimes. Who do you think you're talking to? You have rights. Yes, I do. You ought to demand your way. Yes, I think I should. Where do you think that conversation's coming from? Who are you talking to? Who's egging you on? Who's planting thoughts? Who's stirring up the pot? If not the projection of demonic spirits. And, and, and how do they have this give and take if they don't know what you're thinking? Of course they do. And the Holy Spirit is there projecting Scripture into your mind and encouraging you in the way of truth and moving you toward righteousness. If you listen, there's three voices. Yours, His, and theirs. And we are given the spiritual armor to defend against that kind of conflict, the helmet of salvation that brings us our standing in Jesus Christ and fortifies us and, and gives us the mind of Christ. We're given a breastplate of righteousness to protect our heart. You know, our hearts are vulnerable. I don't mean the one beating blood. I'm, I mean the one that is the center of our, our soul, our being. Where, where we're tender and sensitive. And the enemy comes in and wants to accuse us. That's his role, to accuse us. You're no good. You're not lovable. You're not worth anything. You don't have any gifts to contribute. There's nothing you can do to help. Um, you're always in the way. You're constantly creating trouble. Uh, You're so sinful, God can never use you. On and on and on the tapes play. And what does the scripture say? I am in Christ Jesus. I have been purchased by his precious blood. 
I have been forgiven. I have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I can come boldly into the presence of my Father because I am totally holy before his eyes. As if he were looking at his own dear son, I can stand in his presence with boldness and ask for his help. I need not be afraid of him or shrink away from coming for help and asking with courage and conviction that he is there to assist me. I can come into his presence with confidence because I am forgiven. I am cleansed. I am pure in the blood of Christ. Do you know that? The enemy has no lie to bring against you in that respect. The girdle of truth. This is where doctrinal fidelity comes in. Biblical truthfulness. Theological accuracy. Do you know the Word of God with, with a way that has influenced your view of the world and the way you think? You know the story how the people of that day, Roman soldiers had an abbreviated version, no pun intended, and other people had long flowing robes. Uh, for centuries, when they would go to battle, they would use a girdle. It was something that they would wrap around their waist, and then they would drop a loop down uh, between their legs and pull these loose, flowing garments up so that they would be up above their knees. They could be agile, they could move, they could dart, they could do whatever they needed to do because they would tie it up and bind up the loose ends and give themselves the ability to move quickly and with, with accuracy and not get tripped up. And spiritually speaking, Paul says, we have a girdle of truth. It's the perspective, the mindset of God revealed in His Word, the renewing of our mind that we may prove the will of God that binds the loose ends and makes us able to move with agility. And navigate with accuracy. Because the truth is holding our minds in place. We don't have these crazy, bizarre thoughts. We have thoughts that are centered in the Word of God and trained by the Scriptures. We have shoes that equip us both defensively and offensively to stay on the path and to keep our focus and to remember that we are called to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, sharing the message of the gospel of peace. How much more would get done if we'd stop paying attention to all of this personal drivel we get wrapped up in and we kept our focus on sharing the gospel message of Jesus Christ? You know, the real question to ask when we're having trouble with somebody else is, is this conflict worth sacrificing the ministry of the gospel? People are dying without Jesus Christ. Can I afford this fight? No. You need to give that stuff up. Keep your focus straight. Keep on the path. Keep... Keep moving in the right direction. Keep your priorities. We're given a shield of faith. The enemy throws those darts, plants thoughts in our minds, accuses us again, uh, parries and thrusts, and 
these flaming darts come at us and we have a shield that we can hold up. It's the faith that God is good and His Word is true. God doesn't love you. He's not for you. Look what He's allowing to happen in your life. If God really cared about you, you wouldn't be in this mess. Why don't you just give that whole notion up and, and, and just uh, go your own path? I have a shield of faith to quench those fiery darts. God is good. God is true. God loves me. I can count on that. I have a sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God that enables me to parry and thrust and be offensive and defensive. How did Jesus handle temptation? It is written. And so I'm equipped. The idea is not to give us some kind of mental picture that we can go through and say, okay, today I put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the girl of truth, shoes, preparation, gospel, peace, shield, faith, sword of spirit, I'm ready to go. No, the idea is that I can imagine in this pictorial form that in truth God has met me in every dimension and provided what I need so that I cannot be defeated by the enemy. There's nothing magic about the armor of God. It comes with growing in faith and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, with fortifying our spiritual and mental defenses, with understanding the truth, becoming enriched in Him. Remember what Paul said back in Ephesians 4, that we are given uh, all of these uh, people to help us in the body of Christ so that we will no longer be tossed here and there by trickeriness and crafty scheming, by deceitfulness, by every wind and wave of false doctrine, but speaking the truth in love, we can grow up. The idea is to bring us to maturity through biblical truthfulness and keep our passion for Jesus Christ and our love for one another in the forefront to guard that. The spiritual warfare that we're engaged in is not so much the dramatic encounter of overt demonization as it is the daily battle that we face to indulge self to feed the flesh, to demand our way, to assert our rights, rather than yielding to Jesus Christ as an ambassador, proclaiming his truth and loving each other in the bond of the Spirit. Father, I pray that you'd give us wisdom and that we would focus on the things that are dearest to your heart that you would remind us how precious it is for your children to dwell together in unity and how much joy that gives you to celebrate the blessing of your Spirit among us and to exalt our Lord Jesus Christ, encouraging one another always to love and good deeds. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.